Tonight, we are looking at the book of Joshua. And before I even begin, I just want to say thank you to the other guys who have taught. Um, I, think, I think they're doing a great job with this series. When I was putting this together in my mind and thinking through what this could look like and if it was going to be a, a helpful thing, uh, they are exceeding my expectations, and, and I think it has been abundantly helpful. So I'm very grateful to them for the work on this and, and glad for the opportunity to, to insert myself in here a few times and take a few of these books, but, but I'm grateful for, for their work. And hopefully you've been learning a lot as we've been going along. You know, it's a lot of information, right, when you're doing overviews of books, but, but I think it's uh, <clears throat> abundantly helpful to, to get a good glimpse of the forest and not get lost in the trees all the time. When you think about a king, your mind might go to many places. Perhaps you think of famous kings down through the centuries, such as King Nebuchadnezzar or King Cyrus or Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great or even King George who just took the throne. Or maybe it's someone like LeBron James who was given the nickname King when he was a freshman in high school. People were running around the hallways saying, he's the king, he's the king, which is wild. Or Michael Jackson, who was known as the king of pop. Hopefully not. Hopefully that's not what comes to mind when you think of the king. For some people it might be. The point is this. The term king tells us something about that person who holds that title. It can speak of their authority or their dominance or even in some cases their popularity. But real, true kings are known for their rule and their right to rule a particular territory and particular subjects. It is that concept of kingship that I believe is the primary unifying theme of Scripture, as I mentioned to you a number of weeks ago when we began this series. Not like any human king, whether rightful or self-proclaimed, God is the majestic, sovereign king of the universe. His dominion is not relegated to some specific territory or people. Rather, it is infinite in its expanse, and it is eternal. God rules universally, excuse me, universally as the judge and owner of everything. He rules in a mediatorial way through his human representatives, his his vice regents, as we talked about. He rules the spiritual aspect of his kingdom, those who come to him on his terms through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the reality is, I believe, that the theme of kingship runs through the pages of Scripture. And I don't see Joshua as any exception to that. Joshua... The book of Joshua comes on the heels of Moses' departing words and his death, as we learned about last week. You remember Moses, who was deemed the most humble man on earth, the most humble man who ever walked the face of the earth, who had been chosen by God to lead the people of Israel to the promised land that he got angry at the rock of Meribah, and God, because he did not treat God as holy, 
God took away his right to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. And so instead of reading, you're in the book of Joshua, that Moses continues his quest, and along with his sidekick Joshua, into the promised land, Moses is now gone. And God has buried him in the mountains somewhere. And so now Joshua begins. Joshua takes over as the leader of Israel. The book of Joshua is the first book of the historical section genre in the Old Testament. We just finished the Torah, the Pentateuch. Now we are entering the historical section. Uh, The books in this genre are Joshua all the way through Nehemiah. They cover the history of Israel up to the intertestamental period, which is that 400 years between the Old and New Testaments, between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew. These historical books detail God's rule of Israel and his grace, his mercy, his provision, and his judgment for the nation, beginning with their crossing into the promised land and then the conquering of the promised land, which is Canaan. The book doesn't explicitly say who the author is, as some of the books do, but it is likely Joshua Uh, who wrote the majority of the book, and probably one of his assistants who penned the part about his death. Some commentators think that assistant could have been Eleazar the high priest. The simple theme of the book, which we will expand upon, is conquer and divide. I I think the theme is is bigger than that, but, but it is a good theme, conquer and divide. It is takes up the majority of the book. In fact, Uh, beginning with the conquering of Jericho in chapter 6 all the way through 21. There is conquering of the land and dividing of the land, so it definitely fits as a good, broad theme of the book. Joshua is full of action as God the king leads his people into Israel to conquer the land of Canaan, which he had promised to their forefathers. Joshua is certainly the the primary character in this book. He was born into Egyptian slavery and then trained by Moses, serving at his right hand. And he was God's choice in his providence to lead the people of Israel into the promised land at the young age of 90 years old as Moses passed the baton to him. Have you guys seen 90-year-old people? I think they probably looked different back then. I think over the centuries, obviously, the corruption of sin has gotten worse and worse and worse, and we age a lot faster and a lot worse now. There's a lot more disease. So he was still in pretty tip-top shape, I think, at 90 years old. It's pretty amazing. In the book of Joshua, we see God, the sovereign king, graciously ruling over his people through Joshua, his vice-regent. So for the remainder of our time tonight, I want to draw your attention to the theme of God's kingship throughout this book of Joshua as we use that to walk through the storyline. So again, there are broad themes. There's the conquer and divide theme, but I think, I think a better theme is even God's kingship, which we will see woven throughout the storyline of the book of Joshua. We will trace the storyline by placing the action under several characteristics of God's kingship that will become clear as we move through it. And I'm going to do this by highlighting the major events in this book. 
stories that I'm sure you've heard, stories that I'm sure you have enjoyed even uh, from being children. But we're going to see this theme run right through this book. The first characteristic that I want to draw your attention to takes into account the entirety of the book, and that is the king's preeminence. The king's preeminence. God is the sovereign king of the universe, including the king of his people, Israel. And therefore, he has the right to rule them. He is the transcendent king. Therefore, everything he instructs Israel is his right. His preeminence speaks to to his authority. This is seen as he leads them across the Jordan and commands them to conquer the Canaanite cities his way, a way in which he brings glory to himself. And you will see this clearly as we walk through these chapters. God is the character of utmost importance in this book, and his preeminent kingship is put on display throughout. Just as the people of Israel were required to submit to their God and king and his law, so are we. You and I are required to submit to this preeminent king of the universe. The nation of Israel has been under the Lord's authority ever since the dawn of time, but they started to realize they were under his authority after Abraham was called out, and then they began their history and ended up in Egypt, and now they have gotten to the promised land. God gave them instructions along the way, didn't he? We saw that as we went through the Torah. Why did he lead them out of Egypt? He led them out of Egypt to take them to Mount Sinai. For what purpose? To worship him. To worship the true God who had taken them out of captivity and then to give them the law. To to show them that I am the true God and this is how you worship me. God is the preeminent king and his kingship is seen over the nation of Israel, and and this same king is the one that we must respond to. We must respond to the king who calls the shots. Just as God gave the law to Israel, that same law has been given to us, and that law shows us that we are, are sinners in need of a gracious God, and that if we are going to come to this gracious God, we must come to him on his terms. Why? Because he is the preeminent king. He is the one who deserves all the glory and honor. He is the one that has all authority. And we'll see that as it kind of overshadows this, this, this book. But as we turn our attention to the specifics of the book, I want you to note, secondly, the king's promise. The king's promise. Look at Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your feet treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. 
from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea, the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will ever, will ever be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Those first few verses in this book, God commissions Joshua. Moses has died. They have just been wandering the wilderness for 40 years due to their disobedience. Remember, God took them out of the promise. I took them out of Egypt to take them to the promised land immediately. And they sinned against God and they rebelled against God. And so God let an entire generation die off as they wandered from place to place for 40 years. And in that wandering, in that, in that discipline, God provided for his people and cared for his people. And now he has brought them to the brink of the promised land. And their great leader who led them out of Egypt has passed away. And this Joshua, this sidekick, is now in charge. It was time for him to take over as the time had come for them to cross into the promised land. And so God commissions Joshua and says, be strong and courageous. And he's going to need that as he goes throughout these conquests, as he leads these people to dominate these territories that, these, that, that is uh, dwelled in by these Canaanites. He's going to, to need to remember that God himself, the preeminent king, is also the God who has promised them that they are going to take possession of this land. You saw that in verse 6. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. He reminds Joshua of the promise. I know it's been a long time, Joshua. I know you've dealt with this people for many years, but the time has come. And he commissions him. And Joshua is now time. It is time for him to rise up into the position that God had called him. And Joshua's leadership is critical because, because God had promised this land to the people of Israel, and they needed a leader to see that promise come to fruition. He is commanded throughout this book to be strong and courageous, as we just saw in those nine verses. That is, that is throughout the book. That and the command to do not fear just dominates, dominates the words in this book. That promise that he swore to his forefathers was promised to Abraham back in Genesis 12. You remember that. The Abrahamic covenant is God promised Abraham land, seed, and blessing. Called him out and said, you're going to a new land. Go dwell in the land of Canaan. Now I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make people, your people expand. And so God is now coming true 
on that promise. He is fulfilling that promise by giving them this land. And you know what's fantastic about this? Turn to chapter 21. Chapter 21, verse 45. says, Not one of the good promises which Yahweh had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. This God who had promised these people this land, not because of anything they were, not because of anything they had done, but because he wanted to extend mercy to these people and have the world look in upon these people and see God's glorious mercy on display so that the world would come to God. And now he is fulfilling these promises right before their eyes. It's a great truth. God the king kept his promises to his people. God kept his promises to Israel and he keeps his promises to you and to me, believer. The Bible is full of promises to those who belong to God. And when you read the book of Joshua and when you see everything that takes place, we are reminded as God's people, we are reminded of those, as those who have been born again, of those who have been converted, of those, those who have belonged to Jesus Christ, that we have been given promises by God and that he will fulfill all of those promises for us. One of the greatest promises that we have is the promise of eternal life. Right? That one day we will be removed from this current situation with this fallen and corrupt world and we will be in the presence of Christ for all of eternity. Uh, there is no greater promise than that, is there? Uh, we will then be with Jesus. We will see him face to face. We will then worship him and serve him for all of eternity. That, that is the greatest promise we could ever be made. And the reality is, as you read through the book of Joshua and you see time and time and time again, God fulfill his promises down to the letter. That we as his people are on the receiving end of his promises as well. Different promises that were made to Israel. We're not getting a land. We're getting an eternal land. We're getting a, a home in heaven. We're getting an eternity with the God of the universe. But just be reminded of that. As you read these Old Testament accounts, as you think through the history of Old Testament Israel, be reminded of the fact that this same God is your God. And he is fulfilling his promises to you day in and day out. And he will complete all of those promises that he has made to his people. We will be in glory with him. Now, when you think about the promises that, that God made to Israel, the book of Joshua, he is, he is coming true on those promises. Those, those things are happening. They do get this land. The, we have to also remember that the complete fulfillment of the land promise won't come to fruition until the millennial reign of Christ. Why? Well, because as God was giving them their land, according to his generous promise, we will see that they still did not completely obey, which brought God's discipline. And you can read through, and, and there's a section I think we'll get there where it says, uh, they did not conquer all the land that they were called to conquer. And as we get into the book of Judges, next time you'll see that unfold. And it'll say that time after time in the first handful of chapters that, that they did not conquer this group totally. They did not take care of these people completely. 
and it turns out for, for, for their, not for their good, for their demise. And so the complete fulfillment, the absolute fulfillment of this promise comes to fruition in the millennial reign of Christ. This goes back to the obedience brings blessings and disobedience brings cursings concept that we learned at the end of Deuteronomy last time. This is what God was talking about. You obey, you're going to be blessed in this way, specifically this way with the, with the nation of Israel. You disobey, you're going to be cursed, and all these cursings are going to come upon you. And Joshua even reminds them of that at the end of the book of Joshua as he gives them his farewell address. But the reality is, you start to read through this, and just at the very beginning, you can see the king's promise begin to unfold. Well, we must move on to our third characteristic of God's kingship that we find in this book, and that is the king's protection. The king's protection. So it's time for them to cross the Jordan River, and they come to chapter 2, or we come to chapter 2, where we see that the spies have to be sent to the land to spy it out, to figure out how are we going to conquer the land of Jericho, right? Because they're going to they're gonna cross, they're going to conquer this land, and then they're going to cross this, this river. And so they go in, and you know the story of these spies. They are hid by Rahab, who was a prostitute, in her house up on top of the roof. And the men heard about it, and they came and they wanted to find these men to get them out. You see that in verse 3 of chapter 2. It says, The king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men, hidden them, and said, Yes, the men came to me, but I don't know where they came from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. And so Rahab gets rid of these men that the kings send, uh, that the king sent for to get. People always ask the question, right, when you get to this story, or there's a main question that comes to your mind, is so uh, Rahab's lie, what about that? Is it condoned? Is it blessed? What about that lie? Well, it's important to understand that when you get to like Hebrews 11, when it talks about the faithful folks in the Old Testament, all the hall of faith is what we call that chapter, that Rahab's lie is never condoned, actually. Her faith is condoned, and her faith manifested itself in how this worked out, and, and there's some different things you get into when you think about military campaigns, you think about war, and you think about the deceit that's all involved in that, and so you don't want to look at Rahab's deceit here in terms of, of it being this rebellious heart against God, it's actually quite the opposite. It's a faithful heart towards God that manifests itself in this deceit. And, and sometimes we have a hard time reconciling that. But just understand that when Rahab's talked about in the Scriptures, it is her faith that is condoned. Now, her faith worked itself out in this interesting way of sending these guys away in terms of a lie. But her faith, her heart, it was a faithful move to do that. And God certainly did that. And God certainly honored that in terms of the fact that his sovereign protection was given, was used with the lie of Rahab to protect his people. And so God can take any, anything and he can turn it for good, whether that lie, how that lie works itself out in the counsels of 
the triune God and how that all figures together, maybe one day we'll, we'll know how those things all mesh. But we do know that her faith was condoned and her faith manifests itself in this deceit, but God blessed her faith. Not only did he protect the spies, however, God in his divine wisdom had planned for the Messiah to come through Rahab's line. And so he protected her and her family. Right? You, we're, we're going to see in a moment, you know the song, right? Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Jonathan sent me a little uh, spiritual this week of that and I was playing it for my kids and they were like, what is this? And it was, you know, that song, right? We're not going to sing it. But, but Rahab's family was saved. And so we see the protection of God over this, this messianic line, right? The line which Christ came through. In Matthew 1, we find the genealogy of Jesus. Listen to verses 5 and 6. It says, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. And we know that the Messiah came through the line of David. Rahab, this prostitute, was King David's great-great-grandmother. And God's sovereign protection, he's this Gentile woman, this woman who had lived a life of, of rebellion and a life of sin against God, a life of sin against many people, most likely. And he transformed her heart and he gave her faith and she helped out these spies and God and his providence through that whole situation then used that woman to bring forth the messianic line. I mean, that gives us a lot of hope, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, she was a mess, right? I mean, you heard the word prostitute, you know it's not a good person. But we find hope in that because that's, in many respects, all of our stories. That God in his kindness and his grace reached down because of who he is, not because of who we are. And he grants us life as he did to Rahab. And so, as I said, she ended up being King David's great-great-grandmother because of the sovereign king's divine protection. And God the king also protected Israel as they conducted their, their northern and southern campaigns, defeating the Canaanites in various ways, only losing people when they were disobedient. Do you realize that? When you're reading through, Israel wasn't losing people. It like these the war, wars that we think of where, you know, think of the war of Ukraine and Russia right now. There are a lot of people dying on both sides. That wasn't how war worked with God and Israel. <laughs> they only lost people when they were disobedient and rebellious. They dominated these nations. That was God, the king, protecting his people divinely. Well, as a result of the spies' faithfulness, Rahab's faith and the king's protection, chapters 3 through 5 then detail the nation of Israel crossing the Jordan miraculously, right? God opens it up and they cross on dry land, much like he did with the Red Sea. And then they build a 12-stone memorial as a testament to God's faithfulness. And then they have to be circumcised, which is the sign of the covenant, because this generation hadn't had that happen yet. And they're about to enter the land. About to, in some sense, this is holy ground they're coming to. 
This is the land promise that God had given them. And so all of these things happened. They crossed the Jordan miraculously, an act of God. They built this altar as memorial to God and memorial to, to, to their sons who come after them to say, look what God did. And then they were circumcised as a sign of the covenant because they couldn't enter that land without that happening. Now, I just want you to see that in a few texts. So Joshua 3.17 Joshua 3.17 says, And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. So there's, there's the miraculous work of God. They, the priests were in there with the, with the Ark of the Covenant. That allowed the waters to part and people to walk on dry ground. Then you have the memorial stones, chapter 4. Now when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one from each tribe, and command them, saying, take up for yourselves 12 stones from here, out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet are standing, and carry them over with you, and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So Joshua called the 12 men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, cross again to the ark of the Lord, your God, in the middle of the Jordan. Each of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let's be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later, saying, What do these stones mean to you? You shall say to them, Because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones became a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Again, a testament to the faithfulness of God. Then Joshua 5 details the fact that they had to be circumcised. I'll just give you verse 9. It says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, so that the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. And so these folks who were uncircumcised, who were identified with the pagan nation of Israel, they had now been circumcised, so they are now identified as the people of God going into the land. That's why that had to happen. Well, we continue to see the characteristics of God, the king manifested in a fourth way, which is the king's power. The king's power. Two events I just want to point out. Events you're familiar with in chapter 6 and 10 that highlight God's power manifested in Israel's taking possession of the land. First event is the Battle of Jericho. God put his sovereign power on display. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went in, went out, or, or, and no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hands. With its king and the valiant warriors, you shall march around the city, all the men of war, circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. The priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when you make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout the great shout, and the wall of the city will fall flat. And the people will go up from uh, go up. Every man straight ahead. So you, you see that weird call to war. <laughs> right. It wasn't get up your best gear and get your best fighting instruments. And gird yourselves for battle. It was let's go march around the city and blow some trumpets and break some pitchers. Let me take care of the rest. Why did God do that right at the outset? Well, God had to demonstrate to this nation that, listen, I have told you, you are going to come take this land. 
now I'm going to show you that I have the power to do this like that with whatever means I choose. And the king put his power on full display as they marched around the city for seven days. And on that seventh day, as the song goes, the walls came tumbling down. And they went and annihilated the people of Jericho as God had called them to do. The second event is found in chapter 10, Israel's battle with the five kings. Remember chapter 9, interesting chapter, the Gibeonites were getting scared to death because they saw Israel had just trampled this, this community, and they had trampled Ai, which we'll talk about in a second. And so they were scared to death. And so verse 3, chapter 9, when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they acted. They also acted crafty, craftily and set out as envoys and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, and worn out and patched sandals on their feet, worn out clothes on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and had become crumbled. And Joshua, they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him, to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country and therefore make a covenant with us. So the Gibeonites deceived Joshua. They knew they were next. Right? They're watching this take place and like, yeah, one, two, Let's do something about this. And so they go, and they deceived Joshua. Joshua took them at their word and made a covenant with them when they should have destroyed them. They were conquering the land. God had told them to do so. And he made this covenant with them because he did not consult the Lord. And so he goes before the Lord and talks to the Lord about it. And the Lord says, listen, you've got to talk to me about this stuff. <laughs> I'm going to guide you. I'm going to guide you. He had told him in chapter 1, strong and courageous. I'm with you wherever you go. I just dominated Jericho with the sound of ram's horns and a pitcher. Why? Why won't you ask me? We do that sometimes, don't we? We watch God work in so many ways and fail to come to him at certain times, make stupid decisions, and have to deal with the consequences. Well, they have to deal with these consequences and so this leads to five surrounding kings hearing about Israel and coming and attacking Gibeon, uh, the Gibeonites. And so they reach out to Joshua for help to help defend them. So let's pick up again in chapter 10, verse 6. These five kings have come after the Gibeonites. Gibeonites reached out to Joshua and said, hey, we made a covenant with us. Come help us. We don't want to die. Verse 6, then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp of Gilgal saying, do not abandon your servants. Come up quickly and save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal and all the people of war with him, the valiant, all the valiant warriors. The Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I've given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came up suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. And the Lord confounded them before Israel and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and pursued them by way of the accent or the ascent of Beth Horon. And struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were at the descent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from hailstones than those who were killed by the sons of Israel with the sword. So there's, there's a first sign of God's power. <laughs> I mean, they're doing their thing, going after these guys, killing them with the sword, and 
God says, let's speed up the process a little bit. Starts throwing down the hailstones and just starts dominating these people, people of Israel watching this happen. Then verse 12. And Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said, sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. It says, it's not written in the book of Jashar, and the sun stopped in the middle of the day and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. There was no day like that before or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of man, for the Lord fought for Israel. The king is powerful. The king is powerful. He stops the day in its tracks to put his power on display for this people who he took out of Egypt and he was giving this land to. An amazing thing. The same king has demonstrated his sovereign power in your life, believer, as he brought your dead soul to life through regeneration. At this same power, as he was throwing down hailstones and crushing enemies and commanding the sun to stand still and the moon to keep its position, this is the same power that reached into your dead soul and made you alive in Christ. He's an amazing king. He continues to demonstrate his power in your life every day by enabling you to live in a way which pleases him through his indwelling Holy Spirit. you realize that? As you actively obey Christ, as you actively fight against sin, that is the power of God working through your life to conform you more to the image of Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit. God's power is amazing. It's something we take for granted but it's this kind of power that we see demonstrated in chapters 6 and 10 that is the same power that's working in our lives now. Note fifth, the king's provocation. The king's provocation. God, as the king, prescribed how Israel was to operate during each of their battles with the various cities throughout the land of Canaan. Sometimes he would command them to destroy everything and take nothing. Other times he would tell them to take the gold, the livestock, or whatever else for themselves. They could have it. They could build their cities. And when they disobeyed the king's orders, it cost them dearly. And they disobeyed in their very first battle there with Jericho. The event I want to highlight that illustrates the king's provocation is familiar to you, and it happens there in chapter 7. Just look at chapter 7, going backwards. A little bit. Then the next point, we make up a lot of ground, I promise. 7-1. This is after verse 27. So the Lord's with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. They are on cloud nine. Chapter 7, verse 1. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some things that were under the ban. Therefore, the anger of Yahweh burned against the sons of Israel. There was sin in the camp. They were on cloud nine because of the battle, the victory that God had just given them. But there was sin in the camp. What happens as a result of this sin? They go up to defeat Ai, and Joshua's like, hey, let's just take a few guys. This is a small 
Our God is throwing hailstones down on people. Or not at this point yet. Our God is, is crushing the walls of Israel or of Jericho with, with trumpets. We'll just take a few guys. Not everybody needs to go. And they lose somewhere around 36 people. So they lose people, which 36, you're thinking, well, that's not very much. Israel didn't lose people, remember? They don't die. God is protecting them, and they lose people. And Joshua is, is dumbfounded, and, and he's heartbroken. And he goes before the Lord and says, Lord, what happened? And you pick up there in verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They've also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. They've even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. And I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up. Consecrate the people. Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus the Lord your God, of Israel, the God of Israel, has said, There are things under the band in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the band in your midst. We'll stop there. Obviously, Achan is found out. God gives him a process. You've got to go person by. You've got to go family by family, person by person. You've got to figure this out. He goes through the process. They find Achan. Achan confesses, and Achan's punished. Not just Achan, Achan's entire family. And it's not just he gets whipped with a two-by-four. Not that you whip with a two-by-four, but he doesn't, that's not what happens. He gets stoned, and he gets burned outside the camp. This is due to the holy king being provoked. The holy king was provoked and it cost the nation of Israel dearly. And it cost Achan and his entire family their lives. Because they disobeyed the holy king. Friends, this king, this God is holy. And we must take sin seriously and constantly strive to keep sin out of the camp of our lives. God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Be sure your sin will find you out. You've heard those verses. That is because God is absolutely, perfectly holy. And when we cross him by transgressing his law, he is provoked. Another note regarding the king's provocation answers the question regarding how God could command Israel to wipe out entire people groups, including women and children. Because that's a question, isn't it? Well, the biblical answer to this question is that they deserve to be destroyed. Every man, every woman, Every child, just like you and I deserve to be destroyed. They provoked the king. 
the holy sovereign king to righteous anger through their rampant idolatry. And so God was completely just to wipe them out. Every one of them. That's how holy he is. We get caught up thinking, what about the innocent ones? Friends, there is no innocent one before God. We are born in sin. We all deserve destruction. We all deserve death. And so God was perfectly just in destroying these people and these nations who had provoked him to anger because of, his ra- because of their rampant idolatry. We too have provoked the king to wrath. And it's only because of his mercy that you and I haven't been destroyed. Romans 9 clearly communicates that God's prerogative as the holy king of the universe is to demonstrate his various attributes as he pleases, to manifest every attribute that makes him God. He gets to choose how he manifests those attributes, whether that be his just wrath, which he demonstrated by wiping out the Canaanites, or whether that be his gracious mercy, which he has shown those of you who are in Christ. Listen, God's mercy, which is vast and wide, is only available to you if you have come to God on his terms, the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus absorbed the full measure of God's wrath in his death upon the cross for all of those who would come to him. Otherwise, your destruction just like the Canaanites' destruction is on the horizon. And God will be just to pour out his divine wrath upon you for all of eternity. And he will be glorified in it. If you are not in Christ, friend, come to him today through repentance and faith. Let Achan be an example to you. Let the Canaanite nations be an example to you. Turn from your sin. Turn from your rebellion and come. Come to the gracious, merciful God who has offered you salvation through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we must move on and move on very quickly. Number six, the king's provision. This is the biggest section of the book. We'll note it briefly. Chapters 10 through 22, Canaan is conquered for the most part, and divided up between the 12 tribes of Israel as their inheritance. Can you put up that map real quick? This, my friends, is my PowerPoint presentation. See it. That's the map. Can't read it. Eh, Maybe you can. You can see it there. I can't read it back there. But you can see all those colors, if you can't read the words, those are the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the land. That's what they conquered. That's what God gave them. The second half of chapters 10 through 12 details God, the king, providing land for Israel through their military campaigns, the southern campaign and the northern campaign. Chapters 13 through 19 explain how the land is divided up among the 12 tribes. Read it and get through those words. They're really hard. Chapter 20 details the six cities of refuge, which were set up for the Israelites to flee to and stand trial if they accidentally or unintentionally killed another person instead of being killed immediately for shedding another person's blood. God's provision made 
on behalf of our foolishness. Think about that when you think about the cities of refuge. Chapter 21 explains how the Levites were provided for since they didn't receive specific territories. They were given 48 cities in and around and throughout all of the different 12 tribes to build homes, to raise cattle. God provided for them that way. God the King graciously provided for his people. God the King graciously provides for us as well. Know that. Times are difficult. Times are becoming more difficult for people, certainly in this day and age. Understand that God provides for his people. Chapter 22 is an interesting chapter. I was going to talk about it, but we're going to skip it. Read chapter 22 and tell me what you think. It's good. Number seven, the king's prerogative. God, the king's prerogative is to be served exclusively. Joshua gives a farewell address, and then he gets to those famous verses in chapter 24. And with these, I will close and leave you with this challenge that he leaves us. It says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served which were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's the charge we're left with, to choose to follow the Lord wholeheartedly and exclusively. Joshua did this, and after this, his king took him home. Joshua died and went to be with the Lord. Friends, we must serve our king until he comes and takes us home. Let's pray together. Lord, thanks for our time tonight. Thank you for this magnificent book. We certainly wish we had more time to keep working through it, but... Father, help us to take to heart the truths that we have thought about and learned concerning your kingship as it's seen throughout this book. Thank you for putting your glory on display and manifesting your attributes in so many ways. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Pray that uh, be with us now as we close in Christ's name. Amen.